Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. Imagine in that first wave before the vaccine came out, we said to our folks, we were seeing a direct link related to metabolic health. Let's all get more active. Let's all think about how we're eating. Let's all try and manage our stress. Let's work as a community to just collectively get healthier. And not only is it going to improve the risk of COVID, but cancer, your longevity, essentially. What if that happened during that summer of 2020? It isn't about being perfect. It's about being better. Hello, my name is Dr. Stephanie Stima, and I host expert discussions with thought leaders in all facets of health, including nutrition, fitness, hormones, stress management, performance, recovery, longevity, health span, and energy production. On this show, we discuss complex science, but then we also alchemize it into actionable, everyday living. The ultimate goal with the show is to assist you in making informed decisions about your health, and to catapult you into being the hero in your own life. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And today I bring you a conversation with my friend, Dr. Quajo Karamantang. He is a critical care and palliative care physician at the ICU or the intensive care unit at the Ottawa Hospital in Ottawa, Canada. He is a researcher and he's interested in using ICU resources more efficiently and improving access to palliative care in the ICU. To help do this, he founded the Resource Optimization Network, a multidisciplinary research group to help working uh, to help work to reduce health spending in this area without compromising care. He is a podcast host himself, uh, call, and he hosts the ever-growing podcast, Solving Healthcare. And these podcasts feature interviews and discussions on the topic of improving healthcare delivery in Canada. And as you might have inferred, our conversation was all about healthcare policy, and in particular, the COVID pandemic, what went wrong, what went right, what can we learn, and I'm not going to lie, this was kind of a therapeutic conversation, (laughs) I think, for both him and for myself. Uh, Dr. Quajo is also a author. His latest book is called Unapologetic Leader, How We Find the Moral Courage to Do the Right Thing. And our conversation involves uh, leadership and what went wrong in the COVID pandemic, what we can learn, and how we can make sure that history does not repeat itself. So we talked about the policies that were instituted in Canada and the United States. Um, We talked particularly about our, our experiences here in Canada, both of us being residents in Ontario, about the lack of travel um, and some of the passports and mandates that were put in place. Uh, we talk about the history of vaccines in terms of marginalized communities, and we talk about, uh, you know, neither of us are really politically oriented, but of course, the topic of politics and current leadership came up and how we can 
hopefully find some healing both in this country and in the United States and abroad, anywhere where there were very strict restrictions around um, vaccines and where the policy became more coercive rather than individualized care. So I bring you my conversation with Dr. Quajo. Hey, Bettys, I hope you are enjoying this episode as much as I am. We're going to take a squeak, a little short break, so you can hear a word from our sponsors. Hair loss and thinning can be a shock, and it can affect you if you're dealing with a lot of stress in your life or you're in perimenopause or menopause. It can be caused by hormonal changes, a dry scalp, or a lot of product or oil buildup, and even if you wear tight hairstyles like buns or you wear hair extensions. I got interested in looking at my scalp for a better hair about a year ago and came across the Divi Scalp Serum in my research. It improves the appearance of breakage, nourishes hair follicles, and removes product and oil buildup. A couple of key ingredients that I love, it has copper tripeptide 1, which is a small protein to facilitate a clean and hydrated scalp barrier. It has caffeine to help promote thicker and healthier looking hair, tea tree oil, amino acids, and hyaluronic acid that nourishes and hydrates the scalp for a clean environment for healthy hair. If you want to start a healthy scalp routine, I have a special offer for you to help you do just that. Go to DiviOfficial.com forward slash better and enter better at checkout to get 20% off your entire first order. That's DiviOfficial.com slash better to get 20% off your first order. The Apollo wearable was developed by neuroscientists and physicians for less stress, better sleep, more energy, relaxation, and focus. Using the Apollo wearable gives you the same physical and mental benefits of mindful practices like breathwork and meditation, like improved focus and concentration, balanced emotions, reduced feelings of stress and anxiety, and more restful sleep. And this is great news for someone like me who struggles on a regular basis to meditate. And Apollo is unlike other fitness and health wearables because it doesn't just track your health biometrics, it actively improves them by strengthening your nervous system. Apollo wearable users experienced up to 40% less stress and feelings of anxiety on average, up to 19% more time in deep sleep, 11% increase in HRV on average, and up to 25% more focus and concentration. I personally wear it to sleep every single night and have been doing so over the last several months. And I too am happy to report that I have noticed better HRV or heart rate variability, and my deep sleep is off the charts. Excellent. So if you want to experience some of these benefits as well, head on over to apolloneuro.com forward slash better. That's A-P-O-L-L-O-N-E-U-R-O.com forward slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout to get $50 off at checkout. Dr. Kwajo Karamantang, I am just so thrilled to welcome you to The Better Show. Welcome to the podcast. Steph, I feel like this has been a long time coming. We have been engaging online and we have been trying to get on each other's show, but this is going to be magical, young lady. I'm feeling it today. Yeah, me too. And I, um, as you mentioned, we have been, we've become, we were Instagram friends first. And uh, I was watching you all through the pandemic. Uh, You know, we'll get into your story, but you're an ICU doc out of Ottawa. Really one of the only, uh, we'll say non-hysterical, very intelligent, the, the conversation, the dialogue, the critical analysis that you were bringing when everybody was scared out of their minds. I really, really appreciated it. 
Um, and I think from your experiences there, you know, you've been starting to get some recognition beyond Canada. I'm seeing, you know, you're talking with Dom and the uh, Metabolic Health Summit, who uh, shout out to Dom, we love you. So very, very happy to see a critical thinker such as yourself having more international uh, recognition. And you wrote a book called Unapologetic Leadership, How to Find the Moral Courage to Do the Right Thing. And I want to just dive right in there because I read the book. You are so grace, you know, gracious enough to send me uh, a copy of it to read ahead of our conversation. What is an unapologetic leader? I love this. First of all, thank you for the love because it means a lot. But an unapologetic leader really comes down to being authentic. It become, it, it's all about being courageous and focusing on your values and letting that lead the way not letting fear overwhelm you. And this was a byproduct of what we saw during the pandemic, where the messaging was, as you put it, Steph, it was a lot of hysteria. There was a lot of fear being propagated everywhere. And a lot of the things that were said in the media or on Twitter, I just wasn't seeing. I wasn't seeing it to that degree Went in my own experience, and I was there for our first COVID patient in our ICU. I was that I was living that that experience of being totally scared, fearful of what it what was going to bring to com- the community, what it was going to bring to uh, the ICU staff, what it was going to bring to the patients and their families. Are we going to be bringing COVID home? Are we going to be overwhelmed? All these things, and then you would see some true, like some common threads in there. And a lot of this stuff wasn't being talked about. I was seeing either really elderly patients or immunocompromised patients, but the vast majority were metabolically unhealthy, had type two diabetes or prediabetes, obesity, high blood pressure, uh, cholesterols that uh, levels that were abnormal and nobody was talking about it. And so this was like crazy. So our, agenda really came out like when i sat down with my my wife god bless you kathy and we sat down at the kitchen table and we said to ourselves like we gotta we gotta create some balance here this is this is she's a psychologist she was saying this amount of fear and this amount of messaging and the amount of inaccuracies that we're seeing this is not right we got to try and be a voice and so we knew there was risk to it. And we were talking offline a little bit. There's, It hasn't been easy, but it's those principles that we talk about in the book, unapologetically leading, leaning on your values, not leading, not letting fear overwhelm us, not, and like focusing on action, doing something about it, not just preaching about, hey, you know, we need something to change. And, uh, and, and that was really what, really what cr- like created the book. Yeah. And I think understanding, you know, you said something really important there, which is, you know, an unapologetic leader leads from their values when it's easy. And of course, when it's not easy. So um, one of the things that I noticed, and I, you know, we've sort of seen now in the retro analysis, right? Hindsight's always twenty twenty, of course, but uh, what we observed in at least North America. So in the United States and particular, I would say in Canada, I'm closer to that information, just, you know, being a resident here, um, is it seemed like some of the leaders all the way up to the top, like all the way up to our prime minister, um, 
and you know the equivalent the president in the United States seemed to be um, their opinions seemed to move based on polling. So depending on what they thought Canadians or Americans wanted to hear was what they were saying. And I mean, that is sort of the antithesis of unapologetic leadership. That's sort of just catering to stay in power, uh, really. And I say that, you know, sort of putting my neck out on the line, uh, because, you know, it's in this day and age, you know, living in Canada, which I used to, I've said this in private conversations, and I'll share it here as well, is a beacon for democracy, right? People want you know, people want to move the United States. They want to move to Canada because we are such beacons for uh, democracy. And it seems like at least at least it's been highlighted for me. And feel free to redirect me if I'm incorrect here. Um, that the leadership that we've experienced has been anything but operating from values, and it's all about sort of amalgamating power and trying to stay. Um, in power. I mean, our very famously, our, our prime minister called anybody who is vaccine hesitant, um, a misogynist, a racist, uh, homophobic. Uh, I think it was, it was a French interview that he was giving, but he was like, Oh, all these people that don't get the vaccine, they're misogynists and racist and homophobes. And it's like, Oh, okay. A woman's health educator is a misogynist. That's the news to me. Thank you, sir. For thank you. Thank you, sir. Um, mm. So how, I guess my question there, along with me just getting in a little dig at my PM, is um, how do we define, how do we define our values so that when we are tasked with difficult decisions, um, that we can say, okay, I have defined these values. These are my core principles in which I operate from. How do we begin to define what values we want to live by? Yeah, I, I, I think first, uh, I just want to piggyback where you're saying about the leadership that we saw the for me as especially as a, a physician or an ICU doc in general you always rely on data driving your decisions right like right. this is you want some objective data to to help give you the best outcome and what the 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 thing that was lacking was that like not using the data. I'll give a, I'll give an example, a quick example. It's like our kids. Okay. We're in the same country on, and you compare Ontario to British Columbia, British Columbia had their schools closed for, for the, that first wave in 2020, but no other time they closed schools. Okay. And they were quick, quick to take off masks on, especially when the kids were grade four or less, they didn't have to wear masks. And their outcomes were not worse than ours. And we knew the data that would support schools stay, staying open, that uh, we didn't necessarily have the data for masking or what have you at that time. But certainly we acknowledge that there are risks to our interventions. And we it, literally ignored the, the data that is going across the country. And even if we look at Quebec, uh, our neighboring province, they very had... They also had limited school closures, yet we ignored the data. It was got too political. This cannot happen. This is when this is this to me is where where I start to get vocal. I start to get pissed. Like we can't sacrifice our youth for political reasons. And one of the main objectives too as a leader is you have to look at things holistically. Yeah. Like you really have to look at the big picture. This is what something I see 
in the ICU. It's it's if somebody comes in with a, a, a heart problem, if I just focus on the heart and ignore the lungs, ignore the kidneys, the patient will die when they're that sick. So you have to consider everything. Okay, the cardiologist wants us to do this, but how's it affecting the kidneys? Okay, so we might not do that to that level because we we don't we can't forget about the kidneys. Nephro- the kidney specialist wanted to do this, but how's it going to affect the heart? You create you look for that holistic approach. What's the ba- major goal that we su- that patient survives and becomes functional? Same with our society. We have to look at it holistically, and this is what was driving me crazy. It's like how as leaders are we ignoring? The risks, whether it's to our youth, marginalized communities, the economy. Remember, remember. I don't know if you remember back in the day, two-step, when, when the lockdowns were happening, we're saying, what about the economy? If you said, what about the economy? People would be like, our lives aren't worth money and all this stuff. And I'm like, there's consequences to this. Yes. Healthcare is money. Like, you got to be able to afford the medications, to afford to be able to... To, to do all the pre- you got to be able to pay your rent you know like exactly the, you got to be able to pay your rent and put money on the on the table for your kids yes so yeah. like I, I i apologize if i'm getting a little bit animated but i'm pissed i'm still pissed actually because there's been no reflection no 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 post-mortem yeah. to yeah. say hey you guys you know what we thought we were doing our best these are the things that need to change in the future there's none of that it's just still well, you know, it's just not being acknowledged. And, but to, to answer your, your, your actual question, the, the values, like how do you lean or discover your values? So there's two ways I've, 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 I've really thought about this is one is look at your past decisions, like the big decisions in your life, the, the important ones. And look, what are the common threads that you've seen during those, those, those decisions, whether it's, the lens of compassion might come through the uh, uh, lens of taking care of others might have come through, but looking at your past behavior and looking at, at, at what values really um, came through, but otherwise literally what I've done in the past is take a list of values and, and just circle the ones that seem to resonate with that you, speak and, to then, you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and then just nail it down to you till you get to the three or f- three to five. And also, at the same time, if you look at some of your major decisions, ironically, most of the time you'll you'll they'll overlap with your behavior in the past. But that's how I've re- approached looking at the values. Yeah, I love that. That's that's actually how I have done it as well. Like the word excellence has always really stood out to me. It's one of my core values. Everything I do in every way, whether it's working out at the gym, whether it's preparing for a podcast, whether it's, you know, whatever it is that I'm doing, being a parent, I want to do it with excellence. I want to be able to live or to be able to give as much as I can with the skills and the tools that I have in this present body to whatever activity or effort that I'm, um, that I'm giving. Uh, I think like a zest for life, gratitude, being courageous. These are all values that are very, very important to me, um, as well. Clearly, clearly, like it's, (laughs) You're radiating all that. So that's amazing. Oh, I I received that. Thank you so much. Uh, I want to come back to the kids for a moment. Um, And I would actually, uh, you know, maybe I need to speak to your wife a little bit about this as well, just with her profession. But one of the things that I was so concerned about 
in the pandemics, particularly with masking of uh, the little ones, was, well, one, we're teaching our children that everybody's dirty, right? Like I remember pulling my kids out of their, they were in a, they were in a school. I pulled them out of it because they were going to be, they had to be mat before it was closures. It's like they had to be masked. If they went outside, you know, let's say they went to the bathroom, they would have to sterilize their hands coming back in. No sharing of crayons, no sharing of pencils, uh, you know, which is where, you know, everyone's like taking someone's eraser and whatever. And I said, I don't, I don't want my kids to learn that. I don't want my kids to learn that everybody else is dirty. Uh, or we have some like, you know, boogeyman, there's some germs, but the other the other thing that I uh, I'm concerned with, and I'm sure that there are a lot of speech language pathologists that might agree with me at least now, is the language delay um, when we are not able to see the full face and to see the full expression of someone's face, to see their lips moving. Let's say um, that delay of language acquisition, whatever language it is, English, French, Spanish, you know, whatever, uh, I think impacts the child's ability to acquire language and to use it appropriately. And I think also their EQ, right? So they're in, in their emotional quotient. Uh, so we talk about IQ as like, you know, how, you know, quote unquote, smart you are, like book smart, maybe you are. But I think that there's that emotional quotient, your ability to read faces, your ability to read the room, so to speak, right? If I look at you and you have a frown or a scowl or, you know, yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm able to read that and say, oh, okay, he's not happy. So I need to figure out what, you know, what's making him, uh, what, what's, what's he reacting to? I think that that was also very much, um, uh, attenuated in our beautiful kids. And then not to mention, and I'm sure your wife and you have spoken about this, the mental health, like the anxiety, the depression, the isolation that so many kids feel. So many kids missed prom, like, you know, they missed their proms. They couldn't dance with, you know, um, what, 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 tell me a little bit about the conversations maybe you and your wife have had, maybe what you've all, I'm sure you've also seen this in the ICU as well. Um, increase in, we have the data on it, like increase in suicidality, suicide attempts and ideation. Um, what, what do you, what is your estimation in terms of the impacts on our, on our children from some of these closures and, uh, extended masks, um, even on, on university campuses, uh, they had, they still, some of them still do. I mean, some of them still have mask mandates on campus. Yeah. I, this is, there's so much here. Like what, I mean, number one, okay. This was a population great, gracefully that was very low risk from, from contracting uh, severe yeah. COVID. Right. Mm -hmm. Like uh, as an example, you're in Toronto right now, T-Dot. Yeah. I'm in the six. Yeah, in, in the six, if you were <laughs> driving, you have two boys? Two boys, yeah. Yeah, you you drive your boys from here to, from there to Ottawa, my my house. That was more dangerous. Th that was more of a threat than COVID ever was in, in terms of uh, mortality risk, okay? So why the hell were we putting all these inter interventions on the kids when once again, these these restrictions, these measures, could have such a devastating outbook impact on their future, and like it could be generational. Especially, okay, mental yes. health. Yeah. Talk to any mental health professional how that can affect families, not only the the kid, but the kids are like the the family around them. Like uh, 
time off work, the amount of money and needing to invest on whether it be therapy, the medication, what have you, like this is a big deal, right? And and to download that on the kids was was insane to me. And 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 a lot of people at the time they were saying, well, as an example, masking the toddlers. Well, we have no data to support that it's going to be negative. But do you want to wait for that data? Do you want to wait for the data to see that they're, they're, it could affect their language, yeah. it could affect their, their EQ, as, as you mentioned? I had no doubt. Like, my, my youngest, he's now five. I have no doubt his, his speech was delayed as, as, as a result of being, like his, uh, being masked when he had to be. I, I have no doubts about that because just going through my other kids and the kids around, I, you know, I, I t- to me, this was crazy. And then the other aspect of it, too, remember when little Zeke was maybe two years old, somebody, well, one of our co- friends was dropping by the house and it was in the midst of uh, or tail end of one of the, the waves. And the little toddler was running towards the towards the, the adult and the adult stepped away. As in, like, oh, the the kid is going to be, like, watch out. You know, it's a vector of disease. And I'm like, you need to leave this house Mm because the kid's not going to be exposed to this. Because that lesson is going to, has a risk of sticking with them. And we're, I mean, I'm here on this earth to to raise my my boys in the best way possible and and to also protect them. And and that just, like it's one of those things you'll never i'll never forget because it is it's like this is where we're at now or at the time this is not right okay with covid the beautiful thing about covid was the data was so clear throughout here who needs to there's and don't get me wrong like i don't want anybody to come out across this and say like there's a covid denier like i treated and saw many patients unfortunately die from covid my point is, it was very predictable on who was not going to do well. Okay, there's patients that we and knew so what, what were the what were the factors you mentioned age? Yeah, so like extreme age, and even the ones that were extreme age, and this kind of varied during waves. But like say the earlier COVID waves, if you're extreme of age, but also probably had some level of comorbidities. Okay, that was one. If you were immunocompromised, so like dyslipidemia, like yeah. some okay in the metabolic like, realm, right? So we're talking. Or, or, or even like, even like, say you were 93 from a nursing home, maybe you didn't have metabolic disease, but you were not robust, like you were frail, like right. that, that was still somebody that, that could, could that die from COVID, mm-hmm. but extreme of age, and that even got better over time, by the way, then immunocompromised, so they are on cancer treatment, they're a renal transplant patient. That we saw, and it wasn't all type. It wasn't all types. Ironically, it was just specific types that, for whatever reason, seemed to do worse than others. But then the vast majority in the big waves were metabolic disease. You had either type two diabetes, you were obese or pre-diabetic, dyslipidemia, high blood pressure. Like I still to this day have yet to take care of somebody that was completely healthy. To this day, and so. Why not preach this? I want, I'm like telling my parents or whoever, yes, there's some of you that really need to worry. 
and make the extra extra steps. But the vast majority of society did not need to worry as much as we were uh, portraying. And so put the energy in the ones that were at risk. To me, it was simple. Let the data guide the decision. Let it guide the policy. And it just, we lost our way. It was, I don't, honestly, it was scary how crazy things got. And I'm assuming we're going to learn from this. We better learn from this. But we can't go back. Like, we just can't go back to this next pandemic. We can't go back to the same thing. Yeah, as the British might say, we lost the plot. Like, I think we lost, we <laughs> lost, we lost the plot. Hey, Bettys, I hope you are enjoying this episode as much as I am. We're going to take a squeak, a little short break, so you can hear a word from our sponsors. It is almost impossible to get all of your minerals from food alone, as much as we would like it to be so. And many of us are experiencing chronic health issues like fatigue, muscle cramping, hair loss, anxiety, and imbalances with our adrenals, our hormones, and our blood sugar. I have been using and loving Beam Minerals plant-based humic and fulvic supplements recently. They are a full-spectrum mineral supplement, meaning that they give you everything that you need to replenish your mineral and electrolyte stores all in one go. Humic is a powerful system detoxifier of which I know I need to keep my detoxification in check as well as healthy hormone metabolism. Humic has been used in many settings for removing mold toxins, heavy metals, and pesticides from our environment. And they taste like water, so you can kind of down them in seconds every single morning. If you want to try Beam Minerals for yourself, head over to beamminerals.com forward slash better for 20% off of the entire store. Once again, that's beamminerals.com, B-E-A-M, M-I-N-E-R-A-L-S dot com forward slash B-E-T-T-E-R and you'll get 20% off your entire cart. When you were talking, what was coming up for me is what's the rub? Like what was the resistance? So if there's a clear, you know, one of the things I think is so important with clinical data and clinical experiences, after a while, you know, you said age was a factor, but then even then as the variant, you know, viruses are going to virus, they tend to, you know, mutate themselves out into, you know, uh, in existence. So age was a big factor initially, and then maybe less so over time. But the pattern that you seem to identify was over and over and over again, some component of an aberrant metabolism. So dyslipidemia, high blood pressure, hypertension, like all the things that you just mentioned. What is the resistance to talking about that? Because I got a knock on my Instagram account talking about vitamin D earlier on. And I was like, get your sunshine, vitamin D, immune system. And I had like a fact check thing on my, uh, you know, fact checkers say this was false or whatever it said. I can't remember the wording on it, but it was like kind of a knock to say like, this is sort of like a tinfoil hat opinion on, you know, on how we're going to get through it. So what do you think the resistance is to talking about metabolic health? Is it because, and I, I struggle with this, I struggle with this internally. So I'm just being very, um, open, uh, with you here is because the vaccine is like an easy, it's like, look, I've gotten my, it's like a one, it's like just all I got to do is roll up my sleeve, but metabolic health, like metabolic rehabilitation is nutrition. It's stress management it's movement. It's a lot of things that actually take a lot of effort. So I wonder, and maybe I'll let you weigh, on, weigh in on this, like what is the resistance to saying, hey, 
we actually have to have our populate our population needs to up level its metabolic health. We need to get maybe the sunshine, maybe I shouldn't have gotten a fact check thing on my Instagram. Maybe we do actually need to think about sunshine and vitamin D. Maybe we do need to think about movement, like whatever kind of movement makes you happy, you know, even just walking after dinner. Can we all just like as a country commit to like walking 10 minutes after dinner, something like that? What, what is the resistance? Okay. So that's my preamble. What's the resistance do you think to talking about metabolic health or why did it seem to fall on deaf ears? I, I honestly think it was, it was a bit of unifocus. We, it was group think it was unifocus. It was, there's one way out of this and yeah. don't get me wrong. I, it just, I, I'll say this. I don't think it's controversial. I actually think when, with the earlier versions of the, the, the virus, the vaccine worked on severe disease. I, I really, I humbly believe that we saw people. I, I, I think when it came to severe disease, I actually think this was a, a game changer. And, and I think, at some point, people who did not want to deviate from that message at all. That being said, imagine in that first wave before the vaccine came out, we said to our folks, as you just said, yo, let's, we were seeing a direct link related to metabolic health. Let's all get more active. Let's all think about how we're eating. Let's all try and manage our stress. Let's work as a community to just collectively get healthier. And not only is it going to improve your risk of COVID, but cancer, uh, your, your longevity, essentially. What if that happened during that summer of 2020? And we, we, we have that muscle to, to try and be more, to be more healthy. Like that would be so beautiful. And people were ready, you know, they, they were ready to do something. And I, I think it was a real lost opportunity. And, and then the, the other component of all this, I just think we did become unifocused. We, there was one, you know, way out, but then we were also very black and white in our thinking in general. Like we, we, we were, you couldn't do, have two competing ideas at all. Like it was, why yeah. can't you, you know, you could talk about being vaccinated at that time, but also talk about getting healthy. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. And especially when you think about interventions that are not going to be harmful, taking vitamin D or getting outside is not going to be harmful. You know what I mean? Like swing the bat, act. You're making, you're putting some ability to have some control for people. Like the, the, the idea that we, we couldn't, we, that we couldn't even like people weren't, whatever media, whatever, weren't gravitating to this at all. And there were, there were medical studies to show metabolic disease being a risk factor. I, I, I still, to this day, I couldn't believe it. And like, I had ties to the media, right? I would say, listen, can we cover this a little bit? <laughs> like even just a little bit. Yeah. And it was just going on deaf ears. It's almost, it's almost like the, whether it's the media or whatever, it's like, we, there's almost this, failure to believe that humans can hold two truths in their mind at the same time. Like the vaccine can help reduce severity. It can, you know, all the things that it can do. And, and you also have to work on your health and that's a much longer play, right? So the vaccine is a very short, you know, you go to the clinic, get the, it's done. 
And the metabolic piece is a multi-year plan. And so the, as you said, you know, there's this sort of monolithic view in terms of how we were going to get out of it. And for me, I think that was the most disappointing of it all because there were so many, it wasn't even just the, I mean, there were so many other interventions, other medical interventions with a long pro, like a very long history, a rich history of a very gr- good safety profile. We're also being thrown out the window. This is, you know, horse dewormer, this, and, you know, just because Joe Rogan got, you know, whatever, you know, he, the monoclonal antibody, like, you know, whatever inter- intervention, I can't remember what it was that he had now, but they were like, this is a horse dewormer. This is not for humans. It's like, this is not a horse dewormer. This has been used for, I think it was 60 years and it won the Nobel prize <laughs> for uh, its efficacy in, in virology. So, I wanted, I wanted to say that. And the other thing that um, you brought up, which I think is worth just double clicking on for a moment is, um, you know, you said you wanted, you went to the media and, you know, there were other people that maybe were seeing the same patterns of you as you, but maybe not having the value set or not being the sort of courageous leader that, that you have been Um, this idea of consensus medicine. So, um, we all, anyone with a governing body, uh, as I do, we all received very explicit instruct, whether you had an MD behind your name, DC, ND, whatever the letters were, uh, you are not to talk about the V word. It was like, you are not to talk about the V word in practice. You cannot tell your patients what, you know, you, you are, you are allowed to tell them what you have done personally as a citizen, but you using your sort of expertise, you are not allowed to talk about it. And so this idea, you know, I've, I've said this privately in other conversations I've had, like consensus medicine is neither consensus nor medicine, uh, you know, because it's not actually a consensus. It's just silencing voices of dissent, right? Silencing voices that are like, Hey, what about this? Have we considered this? Those are, we don't listen to those people. We call them tinfoil hat people. Mm. Um, and it's not, medicine. I mean, when we think about what medicine is, it's the pursuit of the truth. And in order to pursue the truth, I mean, this is like sort of my love of science, right? Like this is like the religion I pray to with science, you know, like I hung my hat up on science and data interpretation and, and all that. It's like, you should be able to question and actually you should invite the questions because if your hypothesis is solid, you should be able to say, well, this is the fault. This is like, this is the reasoning that, you know, this is the, this is why we're doing it. It's because of this. Like you should have, um, an answer when you have individuals, um, saying that they are the science, <laughs> you know, I think there is, you know, very famous individual out of the, you know, out of, you know, Anthony Fauci said on an interview, like I am the science. I think when you reach that sort of level of, um, I should take out a large insurance policy actually after this conversation, <laughs> all the, all the people that I'm just calling out here. But you know, when you have that kind of hubris, when you have that kind of like, don't you dare question me, that's not science. That's not science anymore. That's, that's coercion. So, um, any thoughts on that? If not, I'm happy to move on. If you look at the history and medicine, when it comes to when we want to serve, we want to, reach as many people with the best interventions as possible. It's all about trust. And to establish trust, people need to feel heard. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And just, I'm going to put this into context. Okay. I did not want to be at work dealing with COVID shit. Yep. Mm-hmm. I, did, I did not want to be 
I was away from my family. I was sleeping in the hospital during the, that third wave. It was busy. I did. I'd want everybody. I'd want, and it was tragic. I was seeing people die on, on their own, mm-hmm. with, despite having a beautiful family, lived a great life. I, we were seeing this, right? And for me, in the context, I I was seeing the the in my opinion the power that the uh, the vaccine had on reducing your risk of landing in ICU. Yeah. So of course I wanted people, especially the high risk people, vaccinated. Yeah. Right. But to force it on them is short sighted. Mm-hmm. When in our history have we said you have to do this to travel? When do in our history do you have to do this to see a loved one? You could, there are people out there that couldn't see a loved one die. Yes. Because of our policies, yes, that to me, I, 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 I can't get behind. I, 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 I it's fundamentally wrong. So instead of, of, of forcing our way, why don't we take the time? Why don't we take the time to say what are your concerns and address them? People like when we do the, I think it's, I forget the term. It's like break. It's like uh, something interviewing, behavioral interviews. I can't remember the term, but it's one of the, the, the this interview style that folks on the Quebec side use to to address the concerns of vaccines with with young moms. And and what was very clear is people just wanted to be heard. They wanted to have feel like they had a choice. They wanted autonomy. And when you were able to sit down and answer their questions. And make them not feel like an a hole, mm-hmm. or, or shamed, of, or shamed for or shamed. asking a question. Exactly. Yeah, they they would turn around and get vaccinated. They, their kid would get the whatever scheduled vaccine because you were treating them like a human being. Mm-hmm. And so, when did we lose our way? When did we we stop treating people like humans? And I, I like I said, I've never been okay with with forcing these things like the passports i was never a fan of and you know you it was a tough time like you that's part of the reason i'm also bitter stuff is like the amount of heat we got for just voicing what seems to be in my opinion just common sense or the way we've always approached things I just and and like I said, there's been no postmortem, but we're gonna look at this and at one day, maybe it's our kids that will look at this and say, "What the hell were we thinking? How could we have approached things this way?" Because once again, the short sightedness is those that were on the fence about vaccines. Where do you think their heads are now? Okay, yeah. what are the childhood vaccination rates looking like now? Mm-hmm. Because you did not treat people like human beings. You treated them like, you know, you got to do it my way or else. And that's not. And I think there needs to be consideration for who you're talking to. I mean, there's so many different. You talk about this in the book a little bit about marginalized communities having a healthy um, and justifiable uh, hesitancy around vaccines because of the way that they've been treated in the past. And if we don't understand, uh, I think you were talking about, it was at the Tuskegee, uh, you were talking about the, uh, men, I believe it was in Alabama, uh, being, they were looking at the syphilis. uh, I mean, I'll let you tell the story. Um, 
But when we don't understand our history, we're bound to repeat it. If you don't understand where you've come from, uh, you are going to make the same mistakes again. Um, and so I think understanding the patient in front of you with their lived experience, their cultural, you know, in the context of their socioeconomic status and their, their cultural, um, uh, the cultural influence, let's say, um, on their, on their worldview, I think is also very important. So I think, you know, again, coming back to the sort of monolithic, like not everybody, you know, like the four-year-olds maybe didn't need it. You know, we have now Dr. Paul Offit, who is one of the, you know, valiant defenders of, he's on, you know, he's on the board of uh, many vaccine manufacturers and he's on the board, I think he's on the FDA and he has, he's part of the vaccine recommendation schedule has come out and said, I'm not getting a booster. I don't think anybody needs one. So again, that would be an example. I was actually very pleasantly surprised to say that. I have a lot of thoughts I was saying to you in the pre-chat on the booster, which we may get to today or maybe another time. But um, I think that you also have to think about who is the patient in front of you. So if the mom feels heard, you know, um, is her is her specific, you know, because we, in the same way that you would just never, you, know, you would always titrate a drug to a patient's size, let's say, their gender, their age, uh, you're going to, you should also be doing that with any product, any, any type of intervention. And so what I've always found to be a little, um, we'll just say like the little hairs on my back sort of stand up a little bit is like, why is this sort of cookie cutter one fits all? And why can't anybody ask any questions about it? It's the one area of medicine that seems so sacrosanct that we can't even question it, which is not, like I was saying before, that to me is not science. That's coercion. So, yeah, yeah. yeah like there's so much there. Like, so first of all, the Tuskegee experiment. So basically it was uh, several black men were allowed to dement and die when they contracted syphilis and go untreated without their permission. Mm. And this came, this came to fruition in the 70s. And this is just an example of how many people of color have developed a mistrust in the, in the healthcare system because they haven't been treated as equal or treated as, as well. And I could mention numerous cases even to this day, based on the color of your skin, you're, you're not gonna have, you're less likely to receive pain medication. Your, your baby or your, yourself are more likely to die when delivering, when delivering a baby. So there is some, there's been historical mistrust. And so when you go to a community and say, get vaccinated or else, and they're hesitant, there's a reason why. And it's important to know that background. And this is why this was a big motivator. Like I we recently did a post on, on, on the importance of diversity. I, I was sitting at a round table when people wanted to, wanted to mandate vaccines for kids to go back to school. And I said, I said straight up, I'm like, people that look like me, who have been traditionally a bit hesitant towards getting their kids vaccinated are now going to be further alienated if we if we throw down this policy you know what i mean especially a group that's already been hit hard with the the school closures the virtual school like you're you're further alienating a group that probably needs us the most right now and if you know that history you would know that this is why there is that level of hesitancy. So 
and, and as you said, when do you ever, like, even medicine now, we tend to try and cookie cutter, uh, like a lot of evidence-based medicine is, is cookie cut, essentially cookie cutter approaches. We, we often just say, hey, the evidence says this, so we're going to give you drug A, as opposed to personalizing it, saying, yeah. hey, you know what, maybe this is what most people in the, your situation would benefit from, but maybe because of aspects of your other conditions, maybe you're, you wouldn't actually be in this study that we're recommending this, basing this recommendation on. But it's 2023. Things are like, there's a reason why personalized health precision medicine is is getting, is gaining traction. This is a way forward. And, and whether it is whatever intervention it might be, we still need to look at the, the patient in front of us and say, have that discussion and say, what's, what's best for you. So how do we prevent history from repeating itself? So, and I think about this in the context of your book, um, you know, if you have someone who maybe defines their values uh, and is leading from that place um, of courage and authenticity and transparency and honesty, as more facts emerge, as more data, um, uh, I think our facts, as they as our facts emerge, our opinions should be able to uh, flux with those emerging with that emerging information. I don't see, at least with the current administration, uh, I would say this is true for the Americans, uh, I'd say it's true for the Canadians. I, well, let's say it this way. I would be pleasant, I would be delighted if our sitting PM or the current president of the United States were to say, you know what, I made a mistake. I shouldn't have isolated. I shouldn't have left that White House message that all of you unvaccinated people are going to die. Because uh, I remember reading that message from the White House. That was their Christmas message. Like, you're, it's a long, wintry death for all of you unvaccinated people. Uh, and, you know, the PM had said something similar. I can't remember what it was. How do, how do leaders like that? Because, every you know, you look up, like, you know, we as citizens tend to look at our government maybe rightly or maybe wrongly, as the people who are going to make the decisions that are best for us. Mm. So how does the leader then say, hey, you know what? I might have taken it a little bit too far. I shouldn't have rescinded your civil liberties to get on a plane or a train. Um, how, do you, how do they own up and make, how do they own up to their mistakes to say, hey, listen, I was wrong. And then how do we amend, how do we mend that and move forward? Is there a way to do that? Or is that going to cause mass hysteria? Is that going to, is, is that, not, do you not think that the public can, can, would be able to tolerate someone saying, hey, guess what? I made a mistake. So I am not a political expert by any means. And so take this with a grain of salt. I, I, I'm going with the way I lead and what I think people are thirsting for, and they're thirsting for authenticity. They're, they're searching and, and thirsting for realness. And if I saw one of our leaders come on, come on a mic and, and, and say, this is what I would have changed. And, and saying, you know, I, I wouldn't have done this. I wouldn't have said this, but wholeheartedly I'm learning from this and moving forward we're going to be more focused on X, Y, Z because I saw what happened and trust me, I'm not going to forget what, what happened. I'd, I'd be slow clapping that bad boy. Same. I'd be, I yes. would, I would, I would be like, actually I get even a little verklempt thinking about it. Like there's just been, 
there's just there's been so much a, hurt. Like there's yeah, you, there's you, so much, yeah. and people people are people are looking for closure. They're looking for, to heal. Yeah. And when your leaders are showing that level of humi- humility and that level of like authenticity and caring, how can how can you not be behind that? Like putting your political issues aside, yeah, you're going to get roasted by the opposition for sure. But there's going to be a lot of people behind you saying thank you. Like thank you for like at, at the end of the day, we're all human, right? And we want connection. And if you could connect with your leader, wow. Like you'll go to bat for that person. You'll, you'll run through the wall. And th- I mean, that's why, that's why I wrote the book. I really felt, you know what it was, Steph, too? I was like, what are, how are we teaching our kids to lead? This is well, this was one of my concerns. As an example, you, you were talking about the kids... So I use kids loosely. Like you, you could be 28 and I'll call you a kid. Yeah. <laughs> but the kids, the university, they're still ma- mandating yeah. either a booster or mask, whatever it was, yeah. on campus. Yeah. And it was no opposition from the kids. You mean, I'm assuming you and I are from a similar uh, era. We would be up. I would protest if they if they raised the cup of coffee. I would be out in the streets marching. Exactly. For- <laughs> I'd be like, take it off my shirt. I'd be yeah. like, what is happening? Let's go. Yeah. You know? It, and like there, there was nothing coming from the kids. That was scary to me. You and you the the lack of engage like they weren't engaged. They weren't I they think were they done. felt hopeless. I think that they yeah. felt hopeless and powerless. And it's that's um, scary. Yeah. Uh, like these are these are our future docs, engineers, all these things, and so this was a, an, another motivator for me. Like my kids, one day will read the book, maybe, but to say, hey, like this is a roadmap to to actually how you lead. I know you grew up during during this time period. That was some BS leadership. That was horrific leadership. Don't don't think this is the way it has to be. You know what I'm saying. Yeah. And I think, you know, to your point, everyone's just like, well, I guess I got to wear a mask on the campus. Well, I guess I got to get my booster. It's just this sort of learned helplessness. And there was, I was just reading this study the other day. I'm reading um, a book in preparation for uh, another podcast. I have another guest coming on and he was talking about, um, God, I can't remember the researcher, maybe Martin Seligman. I'm going to have to fact check myself, but they had looked at rats. They put rats swimming in the water and they noticed that the rats you know, would kind of like tread water for about 15 minutes before they would drown. And so they had this baseline. So then they put this new group of rats in the water. And just before that 15 minute mark, they would pull them out, they dry them off, they'd give them a little bit of a break. And then they put them back in the water. Do you know how long they swam for after that? So 15 minutes, they swam for 60 hours. What? Yes. 60 hours because they were still holding on to the hope that someone was going to save them, right? Mm. Versus just the 15 minutes, right? It's like, God, no one's coming. Okay, well, there I go down, right? So that learned helplessness in rats, I think also applies to our beautiful children, right? So it's like, you can't get an education unless you are coerced into this 
intervention. And there's no way out because no one's saying anything. Our mm. medical professionals, all of our leaders are saying, this is the way out. This is the only way out. And the people who are saying, hey, there might be some other ways out. Those, that, those voices are being suppressed. So I think that in many ways, these our, our kids were like, well, I guess that's what I need to do. That's what I'm supposed to do. Um, and there's no, again, there's no, because there's no dialogue, right? There's no, and di, you know, if you look at dia, like dialogue, it's di, like deal from the Greek two, right? It's like two conversations that are happening. There's one and two, and those might be opposed to each other and they might be parallel to each other, but you have to always engage. It's not a monologue. It always has to be a dialogue. And so I think that some of these kids were like, well, I guess that's just what my life is now. And so that learned helplessness, um, for these kids, I worry about them, you know, that sort of long view that you seem to be taking as well. What are, what are, what kind of leaders are they going to turn out to be when they're like, well, guess I just have to do this. Yeah. Like it's, I'm worried that it'll be for lack of a better word, gutless. Yeah. You know, I, I always try and in terms of my like big moves or big decisions or big actions, I always try and act like my kids are in the room and they they can see what's happening. Mm -hmm. And I I hope that our kids will have some version of of that, like some version of, Hey, you know, I got to hold myself to a certain standard. I got to do the right thing when necessary. I got to be able to look at myself in the mirror at the end of it all. But yeah, I honestly, after that time, period and and how the kids are actually struggling now i still don't think we fully comprehend how bad it was for our kids i i just i still it's front of mind for me and Mm -hmm. and and the and what i'm was also hoping is that we're proactive with this not only are they behind in their education but they're like character wise are we are we trying to boost them up are we trying to provide them with the tools for them to be leaders in the future i anyways i i I could ramble about this forever but i I just think we can't ignore it and we it's important to acknowledge it in your book you talk about some of the you say there's 15 ways that someone can be an an, uh, unapologetic leader we don't have to go through all 15 but maybe pull out for me what are some of your favorite um uh ways that someone can begin to, if they want to activate their inner hero to become, you know, to have that character etching, let's say, um, to be able to forge that strength and that grit, even when it's difficult. What are some of the ways that you love to talk about in terms of how someone can become an unapologetic leader? I love that question. I, I, so the couple that come to mind for sure is, is leaning on action. Like a lot of us, especially type A's in medicine or in healthcare, we tend to want to wait for everything to be perfect before we we try and do something. Mm-hmm. And if I've learned anything throughout my career, whether that's research, starting this podcast, charitable organizations, black mentorship group, is we've always acted. We we didn't think about it too hard. We said this is our intention. We're gonna we're gonna do something. And there's been ton of failures during that those journeys. But we learn every time. So that, that another major thing is don't view failure as failure on its own. Like there's value in it. Like I, I look back at, I mean, it's not a sexy example, but our grants, when we apply for grants to do our studies, I got 
it took me years to get my first grant years rejection after rejection after rejection and then every every product afterwards was that much better and now we're like our group is killing it you know what i mean like it, it was you did the, the groundwork yes at the time maybe if you spend an extra tw- extra few hour or 20 hours on the project maybe you would have nailed it better the first time but you know you you got to swing the bat and 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 Honestly, when you do swing, great things happen. Amazing things happen. Uh, another one that I, I I think is this might be not obvious to some, but um, really leaning on Pareto's principles when it comes to a- action. Like, think of everything in eighty twenty. Like, what's the what's the what's the immediate action that's going to give us the biggest result? Right? And focus on that. I I think people like my. I, I don't think people think about the value of, of their of their actions or next steps as much as they should be. Like I think if you know that if I you know if I say for example, I want to start my research program. What's the what's the next move that could give me the best the the most likely uh, will lead to will most likely lead to success? And for me, it was hiring a research assistant to help help with uh, get the product the, the projects up and running so that was the next step and that was an exponential growth like we went from doing one or two papers a year to five to six papers a year once that step was 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 uh, implemented so really thinking about what is going to give you the most value like what's the next step that will give you the most value and the last thing I think that's top of mind is like the delegation aspect like i really think if you, you want to lead you want to create some great results like you have to be able to have a team around you that you could trust and not and and really focus on what you do best not micromanage not do all the little things like have that team around you don't put value to your time like if you're, you're doing something that you know you choose to mow your lawn when you, you know you could be paying a kid 15 bucks to do that thing Whereas at the time you could be be more productive and working on your craft, well, there's your answer. You know what I'm saying. So I I, I think that's another major concept that uh, comes front of mind. I love the concept of failure actually because I think um, we talk about this in the house as win or learn, um, and every time so you know failing is learning. So actually, and when you learn something, you're winning. So there's actually it's like win or win really. So it's like you know you win or you learn, and I think that the more uh, you know, you mentioned the type A personality, um, which is so interesting. I think that uh, a lot of individuals in the healthcare space, we tend to have that sort of all encompassing. We want to control, you know, we want to be able to control the outcome. Um, and I think so many of us are so afraid of being a beginner. We're so afraid. We're we're just afraid of sucking. We're just afraid of like, just like totally messing it up. And I think that a leader, uh, somebody who achieves greatness is failing all the time, but what they're doing from those failures is they're taking the lessons that are embedded within them. So, what was the? Why did you fail? Was it the prepar- Was it the preparedness? Maybe was it the? You know, whatever, whatever it was. Why? Why did this failure happen? What can it teach me? Because absolutely, I'm going to be faced with a similar situation in the very near future. So, how can I? 
um, learn from this particular situation now so that when that future is my present, that I know how to deal with it maybe slightly differently so that I can continue forward on my path. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Can I, can I add one, one more? It kind of ties to the failure actually. Yeah, of course. Um, I, I, I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't having that, like a chip on the shoulder, like using adversity as a, you often say using adversity as a weapon, like really embracing when the chips are against you and doing everything in your power to overcome that. I, for me personally, and I know everyone's a bit different, so I am not saying this works for everybody, but developing that chip is a huge motivator for me. Like I've, I've been a guy that most of the life naysayers like black kid, you can't play hockey. You, how are you going to get into med school? And like, I grew up in Alberta, like, you know, the idea of being a, uh, a black doctor is really foreign, no pun intended. Um, the, the idea of having a research program focused on costs, the idea of being a department head, um, like all these things have been always like people like, nah, nah, I, I, I don't see it. And I, I honestly, I love hearing that because I'm like, at the end of the day, I'm like, I'm going to show you cats. Yeah. Like, you, you keep, <laughs> keep knocking it down. All right. Yeah, and we'll that. just rise up. Like I, I freaking, I love it when people say like, this ain't going to work. I'm like, oh, is that right? Mm. Six months, son. Watch this space. Yeah. <laughs> have no, you yeah. watched just as a total aside, have you watched the David Beckham documentary? I'm loving it. Okay, so when you were saying that, I was like, he's just like David Beck. Like, it's, you, you remind me so much of like when the whole country was against him and, you know, people didn't think that he could make it. It was like, yeah, all right, I got something to show you. I got something to prove. So it's very, uh, it doesn't work for, with everybody, as, as you said, but I do think that if you can harness that, um, that energy in that way, I think it can be incredibly powerful. But Steph, if you think about a lot of people that have been overachievers, if you like, I, I'm going to relate to more of the athletic world because that's what's coming to mind. Michael Jordan didn't make his high school team. Mm-hmm. Tom Brady, eighth round draft pick. David Beckham, as you saw, a whole country against him. Like this is a very common thread for for overachievers, like developing that chip, whether it's a, a true chip or a, a created one. It could be a massive motivator for some. And and for me, I I almost look for it now. Mm. You know what I'm saying? I love that. I love that so much. Well, Quadjo, we have had such a wonderful conversation here. Uh, I would love for you to plug where people can find more of you, more of your brilliance. I know you have a podcast. Of course, you have a book. So like, tell people all the places, uh, speaking engagements that are coming up. Uh, all the places that people might find you and interact with you. Steph, you are too kind. So easiest, the social media, we're everywhere. Quadcast, Instagram, YouTube, uh, X, Threads, TikTok is our, our, probably our biggest page. And then the podcast is Solving Healthcare. We're four years deep, about 260 episodes. Steph is going to be making an appearance so you're going to have to check that out. <laughs> and then the book is called Unapologetic Leadership. Best place to find it is on Amazon or just Google Unapologetic Leaders- Leadership. And this visage will show up <laughs> on your feed. <laughs> and um, we have a newsletter on our Substack, which is uh, quadcast.substack.com. 
yeah, we're uh, that's where you'll find us. But Steph, I gotta say, uh, this is you, you. Every once in a while, you do a conversation where you feel like you it's it, like it's meaningful and it's connected and 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 this was a lot of fun and it's, it was almost therapeutic if if you if uh, if i might say so cuz there's a lot of uh stones that i feel like we uh, have been unturned for a while and uh, it was great to have this kind of this level of a conversation with you thank you Oh, thank you so much. I know that there's, you know, to your point, I think there's a lot of healing that has to happen uh, with healthcare providers, um, uh, with citizens, um, Canada-wide, America-wide, um, and I'm so happy to have facilitated it with you. So th- I, thank you. I received that and I reflect it right back at you as well. It's a conversation that needs to happen. Um, and uh, I think that there should be more, more of it. So thank you. Amen. Thank you. All right, all right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. Mm -hmm.